0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today.
2: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin
3: booking the guests.
2: In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard.
4: here. Scott Thompson.
5: There you go. Uh, good afternoon. It is three oh eight. It is nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. I don't know. It just felt right. Uh, it's Hamilton Today. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Another, uh, uh, you know, a lot going on today, but sort of um, following up to stuff that we've already done. Uh, hammerhead trivia on the way as well coming up uh, in after the 5 o'clock news. So get ready for that and your chance to win. I guess the big news today, uh, the Bank of Canada rate up a half a point. Some thought it might go up as much as uh, .75 didn't. Uh, growth, they figure is going to stall. And the other message in there is more is a coming. So uh, unfortunately, not good news there as far as uh, the inflation rate and what we need to do to curb it. And you can debate on the other side of the fence, uh, you know, what is the right way to go about doing this. Although I find it interesting because a lot of people were uh, talking about uh, Pierre Polyevre and in him uh, way back when talking about uh, the head of the Bank of Canada and questioning what he what he is doing and so on and so forth. And now we have Jugmeet Singh speaking up and saying that he thinks the Prime Minister should intervene, which again is apparently what they tell you they're not supposed to do. So both the left and the right wondering what the hell is going on with the Bank of Canada and uh, obviously uh, their ways to tame inflation, which uh, I, I guess we all knew was coming, that's for sure. I'm uh, going to play you a little clip though. This is uh, Jugmeet Singh. This is from yesterday today talking about what he was uh, asking of uh, Justin Trudeau uh, ahead of this rate increase
6: the aggressive sharp increase in interest rates are going to mean uh, though those increases are gonna mean people are gonna hurt and and put bluntly it's gonna mean a very likely recession where hundreds of thousands of Canadians are gonna lose their jobs that is a serious problem and I point that out because The Canada, the government of Canada has the power to set the mandate for the Bank of Canada. We believe fundamentally in the institution's independence, and it should remain that way. The fiscal policy and monetary policy distinctions are very important. Monetary monetary policy set by the Bank of Canada, fiscal policy set by government. That distinction is important. But I want to be very clear: The, the government of Canada, the Liberal government, has the power to set the mandate. And in the current mandate, it is a very narrow mandate that is only focused on inflation, but uh, the government of Canada, the Liberal government, included a consideration for maximum employment, but it's not something they've used to broaden the mandate. And my concern is, without including this as a fundamental part of the mandate, maximum employment not being considered will mean that people will lose their jobs, and it doesn't make sense to me that the Bank of Canada will put in place policies which will create a self-inflicted recession where hundreds of thousands of Canadians will lose their jobs. And if the, Canada, if the Canadian government doesn't do anything about that, doesn't step up, it will be a failure.
5: I don't know what any of that means. Do you? Uh, But all I know is we're getting it from both sides of the political spectrum. So uh, what is going on? It's just absolutely bizarre. But uh, that being said, uh, interest rates now 3.75%. That's the Bank of Canada rate, of course, uh, which you and I get at banks and stuff is a lot different than that. Um, But there you have it. So the other big story, uh, Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones, former solicitor uh, general for Ontario, uh, still dodging and getting hammered today, getting hammered today in question period uh, about why uh, Doug Ford will not attend uh, the Emergencies Act inquiry and why he's trying to weasel out of it. Here's uh, a clip of what the Premier had to say.
7: This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Federal Emergencies Act. From day one, Mr. Speaker, for Ontario, this was a, a policing matter. It was not a political matter. And the opposition knows, Mr. Speaker, politicians don't direct the police. Top officials from the OPP that were running the operation in conjunction with the municipal police agencies and the RCMP are testifying at the committee. Again, Mr. Speaker, this is a federal inquiry into the federal government's decision to use the Federal Emergencies Act. Top officials from the OPP that we're running the operation in conjunction with the municipal police agencies and the RCMP are testifying at the committee. Again, Mr. Speaker, this is a federal inquiry Just into the federal government's decision to use the federal emergency Act.
5: Wow. So if I'm to uh, interpret this correctly, uh, he believes it's uh, a federal situation, <laughs> which I would agree with. Uh, but I don't know. Did you hear something in that? Um, can we play that last clip again, uh, Will? And just can you can you remix it? Can you just re-EQ it? I think I'm hearing something else going on in that clip.
7: Can you play that? This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Federal what? Emergencies Act. What is From that? day one, Mr. Speaker. What?
8: Is he tap dancing? This
7: was a, a policing matter. It was not is a it, political matter. Is he tap and dancing? The knows, is there Speaker, salt on the floor the, uh, the parliament? Top officials like the OPT, He's doing a little Fred stare there. The is it? The can you hear that? It's, I think he's. Is that? Are
5: who would have thunk again, that Mr. Doug Ford was so put light put on his feet like that? He's just. All right. That's enough. Um, <laughs> there you go. There's your comedy. All right. So, um, I guess what everybody wants to know is, you know, the, well, if, if you're on the, oppositions uh, opposition, it's, what are you hiding? What do you got there, Dougie? What are you hiding? What do you got under your coat? And, uh, my perspective would be, why, do you, why would you not want to, uh... tell your side of the story why would you not and here's the other big part why would you let everyone else dictate the narrative because you're not speaking because when you don't speak other people speak for you i don't know if you notice that so why not just come out and speak so either a there's some really ugliness going on like the conversation we heard between the mayor of ottawa and uh... the prime minister or there's someone here playing both sides of the fence And, you know it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fascinating to watch. But yeah, m- m- my take would be, why let someone else drive the bus when you, you can have a chance to steer? So, uh, it'll be fascinating to see where this goes, but at this point uh, they are still playing dodgeball. I'm into the Halloween. I love it. I love this time of year. And in case you haven't noticed and everybody's talking about it, and you see lots of people out taking pictures too. Uh, the colors this year are absolutely fabulous. I know, I sound like my parents. Um, but it is. but it is. It's 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 a spectacular time of year, especially this year, and obviously uh, Halloween on its way. Uh, we got the decorations here up at the house. We're uh, rocking and rolling there. Uh, you see a few people getting stuff up, but but hopefully we'll see more around, uh, well, geez, it's like a few days away now. Uh, but another thing about this time of the year that I, um, um, the squirrels. And, and I, I don't know if I, I must have told you because I told, uh, Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, and I think you were listening in on that conversation. And, uh, cause she was complaining about coyotes. I was upset about the squirrels. Uh, anyway, um, so, uh, long story short, uh, buddy comes in, uh, it's not just your average little gray squirrel, black squirrel, you know, the big fat, fu- you know, fuzzy ones. It, this is like the little hellraisers, the little wee, uh, the red squirrel. Like, where the tails longer than the body itself? And I uh, thought we had the problem solved, and I think he's re-entered. I've seen him running around. You know, enough of this uh, humanely getting rid of the squirrel. Uh-uh. I want vengeance this time. I want his head on a platter, if you know what I mean. Uh, all right. But uh, the, one of the more pleasant, uh, I guess, things about fall and the colors and Halloween is is the celebration. And uh, boy, it's uh, there's a great event happening, Westfield Heritage Village, the Halloween Pumpkin Party takes place on Saturday, October 29th, Sunday, October 30th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Reservations, you got to make one. They're open now. And Rondolin Brown with his manager of Westfield Heritage Village on the line. Rondolin, how are you today? Hope you're well
9: I'm doing great thanks for inviting me on your show
5: so it's an incredible year this year uh, we've had really beautiful weather we've had an incredible colors and such what's going on what's it like up at Westfield
9: well the colors here are really amazing uh, in the setting with the historical buildings and a locomotive and all kinds of things the the background of those colorful trees are just beautiful
5: to someone who's never been describe Westfield a heritage village
9: yeah So Westville Heritage Village um, is a uh, uh, heritage village. We have over 34 historic buildings. They include log cabins, a railway station, a church, general store, dry goods store, uh, a schoolhouse, a beautiful log schoolhouse, and uh, lots of many great historical buildings.
5: How did they all get there?
9: So they were all relocated to the site. So they were buildings that were going to be torn down in the location that they were at. And uh, so uh, we uh, we save the buildings and bring them here, give them new life and uh, interpret them to show the uh, the 18 and 1900s.
5: And a great setting this time of year, by the way, uh, 1049 Kirkwall Road in Rockton, uh, Rockton, Ontario. So uh, what's going on with the Halloween pumpkin party? What have you got going for this time of year?
9: Well, we sure have lots going on. It's our first time for this, uh, this new event. Um, we've combined all the best of our Halloween program and our Pumpkin Sunday. And, uh, so we have historical buildings that are open doing pumpkiny things. Uh, some are baking some, uh, some treats, some cookies and treats with pumpkins. Uh, others have some interesting table settings to fit the Halloween mood. Uh, and we have, uh, children's games on the greens. The bandstand is all decorated. Uh, with lots of fun games and things for uh, people of all ages to do, some carnival games, some great photo opportunities, uh, and we have a little bit of scary too. So,
5: so was this something that would have been celebrated during the era of Westfield Heritage Village? Is it much different uh, than it is now, other than I'm sure uh, of the blow-up things on the front lawn and such? But uh, how much did it play in, into the history of, of, uh, of this area?
9: Yeah, so Halloween was definitely not celebrated the way that we do these days um, with the uh, getting dressed up and going door to door and asking for uh, for treats, and if not, we will trick you. Um, mm-hmm. But um, we are, are recreating some of the uh, recipes and um, the different o- older buildings. They, they started, they used to carve turnips, and if you've ever tried to carve a turnip, it's very difficult. Wow. Uh, so now we use pumpkins, and pumpkins are much better and we're going to have a whole barn full of carved pumpkins that visitors can come and see. And we've got some tractor rides through the forest. We've had some scarecrows uh, in the forest that uh, you can uh, take the tractor ride and, and go by and see. And we have a new uh, new activity, pumpkin slingshot. Uh, so we've, uh, we've oh, those are things. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so we're excited <laughs> uh, for our first year offering that and seeing uh, seeing how people love that. And then yeah, in our our train station and in our planing mill. You know, I had only advise the brave to go through because uh, those will both be dark and hmm. uh, uh, and a bit scary. So.
5: So, and we should make reservations for this?
9: That's right. Yep, we ask everybody to make reservations so that uh, everybody can have, uh, have have an opportunity to come in and uh, enjoy it uh, throughout the both days.
5: And how do we do that? Go online?
9: Yep, if you just go to our website, uh, you'll see where you can buy tickets. And the Cope Town Lions will be here with their food truck providing uh, refreshments, and we'll have our general store and our gift shop will be open, and uh, we'll also be showing scary movies at the hardware store.
5: And flinging pumpkins. I mean, it doesn't get <laughs> yeah. better than that. <laughs> uh, great. Can we pick the great. Dir- can we pick the direction they want to go in? I guess that's insurance reasons. You don't want to go there, do you? No, that's
9: uh, right. Uh, Westfield <laughs> Heritage. D- <laughs> that's
5: it. Sure. Westfield. You got that noisy neighbor you don't like? All right. Westfieldheritage.ca. Westfieldheritage.ca to find out more. Uh, taking place Saturday, October 29th, Sunday on the 30th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Looking for reservations if you're going. Rondolin Brown with his manager of Westfield Heritage Village. Sounds like fun. Uh, have a great time. Good luck, Rondolin.
9: Thanks very much. Bye now.
5: And that's uh, Westfield Heritage Village, Rockton, Ontario.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
5: As I was, uh, we, we've been chatting, chatting a lot over the last, uh, oh my goodness. What's, what is it called? A global pandemic and travel and issues here and there, uh, whether it's passports, whether it's lining up. Uh, but things are, are, are evening out, are, are, uh, are starting to stabilize, which is good. And this is, um, you know, we think we really don't need promotions because man, all you have to do is just say go and people are jumping on board. Places are packed. Flights are packed. Everybody wants to get away now because they've been cooped up for two and a half years. So Virgin Airlines, uh, this is kind of surprising, trying to entice more travelers to bear the discomfort of the middle seat. I'm just thinking there's only so many seats. So either you take that or get the hell out. Sorry. Um, but anyway, um, we all, the middle seat, I guess if you're traveling with friends, it's easy, but what if you're, you know, traveling by yourself? So now the middle seat, uh, I guess it's, it, uh, they're having some sort of promotion. You can win a lottery, you win things for taking the middle seat. Will that entice people to take the middle seat? And again, are there that many seats available? We can choose. Let's bring in Barry Choi, a travel expert. He is with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me. First of all, do we have capacity to be choosing seats?
10: <laughs> well, there's technically always capacity because basically every airline charges you to book a seat. Uh, people who don't want to do that end up hoping they can get a seat 24 hours before. Hopefully, for most people, is it's not the middle seat. But now it seems like Virgin Australia is giving people a good incentive to either voluntarily take that middle seat or involuntarily.
5: I'm guessing this is the last seat to go as they're filling up the plane, obviously.
10: (laughs) I don't think I know a single person who has voluntarily chosen a middle seat if they're traveling solo. (laughs) You know, you mentioned if you're traveling with friends and family, middle seat's not a big deal. Certainly understand that. Uh, But for me, it would be like dire circumstances for me to want to take a middle seat.
5: And you have to ask, what kind of personality is the person that wants to take the middle seat? Uh, But no, let's not even go there. So, why are they doing this now? Is this just, uh, why now? Is it needed now? Is it just something different? Why?
10: You know, I look at it and I think it's strictly a publicity stunt, and I love it. I absolutely love this. You know, just looking at Google right now, like, you know, we're talking about it on the radio. CNN has covered it, global news, literally every single market around the world has been covered. Nowhere would i ever think to look up virgin australia unless i was flying there now everyone in the world is talking about it so you know i don't think they needed to do it but i think it's a really fun way to get people talking about travel especially about a seat that we can all agree no one actually wants so, so this is a, a great pr move in my opinion
5: in the end, um, uh, you could make the middle seat more attractive by just making it cheaper. Uh, is that an option, or is it what, what are they doing here? I guess they're often promotional items. Well, what are they offering as a prize? What is actually yeah. what is the contest? Do we know?
10: Yeah. Technically speaking, it is cheaper if you decide, if you pay for the seats, Uh, at least with Air Canada, you know, if you're choosing the the aisle or window seat, it's always a few dollars more than middle seat. Mm. So this is uh, another incentive. As far as the contest is concerned, you know, it's literally like a lottery where you can win things such as free flights, cruises, tickets to a local uh, football game. Um, So they've got a lot of interesting things going on, and I'm sure they've got some sponsors involved. So it was a big deal. I'm sure they'd be planning this for years. Uh, well, maybe not years, for a few months, but uh, there are some great prizes to be won. And, and honestly, you know, let's, let's be realistic. If I was in the middle seat and then all of a sudden I won this lottery and I won a free flight to the Caribbean, from Australia, I would be super excited and I would be talking about it for the rest of my life. So, and you know,
5: if, <laughs> right? think about it, Barry, this could be the tip of the iceberg. You could have like a uh, middle seat club where only they get certain privileges. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different angles. You could go at this. Um, well, look, let's sorry. not
10: take it that far. You know, I still enjoy my luxury travel. I don't want to be in that middle seat club. <laughs>
5: All right. So at one time, you talked about how, uh, you know, you will pay according to where you are in the plane. At one point, you could just request a bulkhead to get a bit more footroom or whatever, and it didn't cost you more. Now that's not the case anymore, obviously.
10: Now everything comes at a cost. You know, there's preferred seats, uh, depending on airlines sometimes. Like, like it's, it's actually really strategic. You know, I, in the past summer, I, I flew... I think it was Delta or American Airlines, an American airline that I am not familiar with that I usually don't fly with. But it's weird, like, depending on where on the plane you were, there's actually three different seating classes. And I was shocked. I was like, oh, if you're sitting closer to the front, it costs you no more. The cheapest seats are way at the back. And and I, I certainly understand that. Or even some other funky rules that some people may not be aware of, like, if you booking a ticket in Canada with your family, the airlines must see each other, but they're smart. What they do is they assign you to seats at the absolutely back of the plane, which no one wants. So mm-hmm. if you want to change your seats, then you got to pay for it. So, you know, the airlines are being smart. Uh, they're profiting wherever they, they can. I don't necessarily blame them, uh, but I know consumers hate it.
5: Okay. So another story, WestJet talking about taking over Sunwing. What can you tell us about this story?
10: This story is basically dead on a rifle. Uh, the Competition Bureau in Canada had serious concerns. Just to give people a little breakdown, you know, WestJet operates out of Calgary. It's got most of the market in Western Canada. Sunwing flies to, to many sunny destinations, Caribbean, Mexico, uh, things like that. So basically, WestJet was trying to take, o- take over Sunwing. It would create a giant market share. The Competition Bureau was like, you know what? Uh, this is probably going to make prices higher for consumers. It's not going to make things better. So the, the competition bureau has signaled that they're not in favor of this. You know, I'm sure WestJet will come back to the table and try to you know, state their case of why it's a good deal. Um, but honestly, it's no surprise that this is happening and why people are talking about it.
5: All right, obviously, Barry, uh, over the summer and such, um, people, uh, lots of people traveling, lots of stress on the system, lots of delay, whatever. Uh, the industry now, has it stabilized? Uh, the health of it, uh, the travel industry right now as we head into the Christmas season?
10: You know, stabilized, I don't know if it's the right word. So definitely there's a demand for travel back. So, so people are seeing the Facebook, but I don't think the airline industry has nef- necessarily staffed back up. Uh, and I hate to say this, but... You know, airports in Canada are awful. You know, we still see a lot of delays in Pearson International Airport, landing, taking off security, so many different reasons, even the facilities themselves. You know, it's it's almost embarrassing, you know, especially people who live in the Hamilton area. I live in Toronto. We're proud to be in this area. But our airport's awful. Um, So the demand for travel is back. There's definitely more routes, but I'm still very worried um, about traffic volume and staffing issues.
5: What do you think is going to happen around the holiday season?
10: Uh, you know, I want to give the airlines the benefit of the doubt. You know, that's still about a month away. Hopefully, they will staff up by then uh, so things will be better. But I expect to see uh, moderate chaos <laughs> in the headlines shortly.
5: <laughs> well, I guess that's the norm now. Uh, Barry <laughs> Choi with us, travel expert, talking about the middle seat and flying this holiday season. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. Have a good one.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXM.
5: Obviously hearing today, interest rates going up again. No surprise there, although a bit of a surprise. Everybody thought they were going up uh, by 0.75. It's 0.50, so a half a point instead of three-quarters of a point, which uh, I guess is good, but signaling there is more. Uh, there are more rates uh, rate cuts coming. And um, it is obviously going to uh, to stall the economy. So that being said, we're also in a, in a bizarre scenario, a lifetime scenario coming out of a pandemic where there is a historically low unemployment rate. So how will all of this affect the job market? How will it affect business moving forward? And 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 how do you balance all of this? Let's bring in Dr. Jim St- uh, Stanford. Dr. Jim Stanford is director of the Vancouver Bay Center for Future of Work, and he is with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
1: I'm well, Scott. Thank you.
5: So uh, it seems like a very unusual situation in the sense that we have a very, very low, historically low unemployment rate, and then we're heading into a recession. So how is this going to balance out? How is this going to pan out?
1: Well, what it means is that unemployment rate is not going to stay low for very much longer. That's the point. It has already bumped up a little bit. Uh, We have lost about 100,000 jobs in Canada in the last four months already, uh, partly because of those higher interest rates. We're going to see a lot more uh, in the months ahead. Most economists think we are headed for a recession now if it hasn't already started.
5: Uh, we're also hearing how much uh, companies or businesses have lost uh, in when it comes to contracts due to labor shortages. What happens here? How does this all balance?
1: Yeah, well, I'm reluctant, frankly, to use the word labor shortage. You know, We still have uh, over a million unemployed uh, Canadians and we've got a lot more who are underemployed uh, doing jobs that don't use their full skills or not working uh, full-time hours uh, and others who would join the labor market and work if there was a job that that fit them. Uh, So I I don't think we have run out of workers. Uh, It is certainly the case that it's harder for employers to recruit and retain talent now than it was in the past when we had much higher unemployment. Uh, But frankly, that's a a good thing, Scott, not a bad thing. It means that uh, people, especially young adults, think uh, entering the labour market have a chance to look for a job that really fits them, rather than taking the first thing that they can out of desperation. So... I don't think we should be in such a hurry to you know chill this whole labor market out. I, I don't think too many Canadians are working, but that is the, uh, that is the implicit message from the Bank of Canada. They're saying that we have inflation because of an overheated labor market and a shortage of workers and I think they're, I think they've misdiagnosed the problem and therefore their remedy to the problem is, uh, is, is unduly painful.
5: So your point is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the workers are there, you just got to pay them more.
1: Yeah, certainly uh, employers have to improve the offer that they make, not just wages, that's important, but also working conditions and, and hours and so on. Think about retail and hospitality. These are the sectors that complain the most about a labor shortage. Uh, and what they need to do is instead of assuming that someone's going to take the bus downtown and work for three hours at minimum wage and maybe or maybe not get a shift on Friday, depending on if they're needed, uh, what they have to do is offer more regular hours and a career path and a bit of stability. Uh, in that role. And uh, then, you know, some of those labor uh, shortage problems will will be resolved. But uh, I think it's actually a good thing that there's lots of job vacancies. And uh, I think that it's wrong to say that the inflation we're experiencing now is because of wages. The data is clear. Wages have been way behind prices. People's uh, real purchasing power from their wage income is falling, not rising. And workers' share of the overall economic pie is shrinking, not growing. So it's quite wrong to point the finger at workers for this problem.
5: So, uh, in a sense, what's happening is industry is slowing down, so the demand will be slowing down for yes. workers. That's probably more accurate way to describe it?
1: That That is what's going to happen. Uh, we've seen the interest rate uh, that the Bank of Canada charges go from 0.25% in March to now 3.75% and the bank said today there's more rate hikes coming, even though they acknowledged uh, the, the severe risk of recession, they're still going to keep their foot on the brake, which is uh, going to mean the recession is a long one. Um, and that, of course, is not the interest rate you and I pay, right, on our mortgage or our credit card bill or whatever. It's much higher. So uh, you've got uh, households that are now putting hundreds of dollars extra per month towards their debt service costs rather than going out and buying stuff. That hurts the economy. You've got fewer people who can afford to take out a loan for a house or a car. that hurts the economy. You got businesses that are very reluctant to invest in new capacity, in part because the interest rates are high, but in part because they think a recession is coming too. Why would you add capacity uh, if you think a recession is coming? And the irony there, uh, Scott, uh, the biggest cause of the inflation we're seeing has been the uh, supply chain problems coming out of the pandemic. And now we're telling companies don't invest, don't add capacity. We're gonna make those supply chain problems even worse because of this, uh, uh, I'd say, one-sided response to the inflation problem.
5: Uh, is, it recession, uh, is it recession versus inflation? Is it beyond? Yeah, that?
1: I, I don't think I don't think those are the only two choices. I, I don't think that that uh, you know the only two things we can do are either tolerate high inflation, which is hurting people obviously every time you go to the grocery store, or have a recession that throws hundreds of thousands of Canadians out of their jobs mm. and out of their homes. So I believe that there's a a, a more balanced and a multidimensional approach instead of just relying on the sledgehammer of high interest rates applied to the whole economy. Uh, let's look at can we target the restrictions on credit. For example, could we use prudential lending requirements and CMHC rules to slow down lending in the housing sector and bring down housing prices a bit? For example, could government address some of those root causes that we see for the inflation that we've had, the supply chain problems? Well, we could be investing in infrastructure in our ports and railways that have been part of that supply chain problem. Housing, we could be rolling out affordable housing supply a lot faster uh, to bring down some of the the inflationary pressure there. Energy prices, higher gasoline is the main reason, the largest single reason for the inflation we've had. Now, we can surely do something about how we regulate the overall energy market uh, so that we're not paying ridiculous prices like that. So uh, I think that um, you know the, the recognition of the unique factors after the pandemic that have caused the current inflation will inform a more balanced and multidimensional and ultimately fairer way of trying to combat inflation.
5: Fascinating discussion. Dr. Jim Stanford with us, director of the Vancouver-based Center for Future of Work Interest Rates, obviously on the way up today and how that affects the job market and industry moving forward. Jim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Take care.
5: Obviously, when everybody went back to school, the kids went back to school in September, there was lots of concerns of what would happen in regard to cases of COVID and such and just the natural progression, the natural flu and stuff we always get when the kids head back to school. And uh, now we are starting to hear children's hospitals in Canada seeing, and in the United States as well, seeing an increase in cases of a common respiratory virus known as RSV, in which ca- uh, causes infections of the lungs and respiratory tract, and uh, cases of RSV dropped uh, dramatically early in the pandemic, but now have come back as uh, we're exiting that. To talk more and decode it all for us, Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, Scott. Good to speak to you again.
4: So tell us about RSV. What is it? Uh, it's not new. Is that accurate? Oh, it's not new. It's been around for a long time. And in fact, it's very common. Uh, by the time you get to sort of uh, middle childhood, everybody has had it. But it's particularly bad for young young kids, babies. Uh, they can suffer quite quite severely from it, with the breathing uh, problems, and also some also for the older people too. They can sometimes get it. It it causes inflammation of the the smaller breathing tubes in the lungs, uh, uh, and uh, and it's it's surging. It's uh, it's it's becoming uh, uh, higher than we'd seen it in previous years. And one of the reasons is is probably because we've been wearing masks for the last two plus years and that's been keeping uh, natural immunity down we just haven't been exposed to these things on a day-to-day basis so we're pretty vulnerable
5: um uh, keeping natural immunity down and i don't want this to become a masking issue but uh, obviously and i remember them uh, talking about this during the global pandemic with the flu we weren't seeing the flu as much because we're all wearing masks um, but also when you're covered up like that, it, it, it does it does it um, stall the immunity that you may get towards these viruses? I guess is what I'm saying, and, you know, because obviously they protected it. They protected us from the virus. So do we take them off and be unprotected or is there a balance there with becoming and building up immunity?
4: Well, I think you've, you've hit it right on the head there. Yes, and we've spoken about this before, and every any school teacher knows that when you get back in September, uh, within a couple of weeks, uh, yeah. half the class and the teachers are coming down with some respiratory disease, simply because they've been away from kids for the whole summer, and suddenly they're cramped in a classroom together with them again. So, yes, the immunity, natural immunity wanes with time, and of course here it's not just a summer, it's... Uh, it's getting on for two and a half, what almost three years in some cases. So that yes, the natural immunity has gone down. So we don't have those antibodies that we would have picked up just by being with people, talking with people, being in the same room, shaking hands and so on. And so that's really part of the problem. Of course, when a new, a new pathogen comes along, we, we say, we don't quite know how this is going to go. So you'd better wear a mask to protect yourself because this could be bad or, and so that's what's happened. So the, the bad, the fallout from masking is that the good thing is that we've kept COVID at bay, but the bad thing is we've tended to have uh, uh, reduced our immunity with other things. And influenza this year, it was a triple threat. Uh, we've got COVID still around, it hasn't gone away at all. Uh, we've got uh, respiratory syncytial virus, that you mentioned at the top, and we've got influenza coming back. And I was looking just earlier on today, and the early indications of week 41, we're just coming into week 42 now in the year, are higher than they were even before the pandemic, the isolations. It looks like it could be a bad year for flu
5: um and again i don't want to send the wrong message here tim but masking all the time may not be the answer as it relates
4: to immunity so again we've got to balance this yeah we have and i think we've got to look at the the demography Maybe that's the better way to put it. Mm. If you're young and healthy, then don't worry too much about wearing a mask to keep off influenza, because it's probably good to be exposed to. There's, there's almost what between one and two hundred different different viruses that cause the thing we we glibly call the common cold. There's uh, dozens and dozens of each type and many types. But yeah, uh, if you're young and healthy, uh, get a cold a couple of times a year or be infected and you're going to be fine. But we got to protect the older people, the younger right. people or that long list of, you know, we've been talking about the last couple of years.
5: Any of this uh, SRV or anything, we're t- or sorry, RVS, sorry, <laughs> I think I just described <laughs> a sports car, uh, any, any of this related to the pandemic or other than the masking, of course, what to COVID-19 specifically, or is this a separate issue?
4: It's a separate issue, a standalone issue, if you like, by itself. But of course, it's been we've just been speaking about how the pandemic has reduced the immunity to COVID. It's also reduced the immunity to the other respiratory viruses. There's a direct impact there. But the other impact that we're we're worried about is that look at the healthcare system. It's already on its on its last legs in terms of many hospitals having to cancel uh, diagnostic uh, procedures, cancel uh, many surgeries. If you go there for even an ordinary you know, a, a broken bone or something, you have to wait for many, many hours, which is not something you did before. So so anybody showing up with anything these days is going to be impacted by the, by the fact that the hospitals and the and the healthcare systems are all suffering already, staff missing, staff retired, staff under PTSD, lack of beds, et cetera, et cetera.
5: Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, RSV, and the spike we're seeing in young people, uh, this fall. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I hope we get to speak of something cheerful one day, too. Uh, let <laughs> go. Bye bye. That's right. We well. have to talk, we have to talk about your hobbies one day, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for the time. Be well. You're listening to the
0: Hamilton Today podcast from 900 Chml.
5: It was interesting because I'm watching uh, out of the corner of my eye uh, a news feed, um, and 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 uh, yesterday, and the deal, the news came down, the story came down that uh, the Rogers deal had been rejected, and I remember looking over and seeing the headline, and it was. Uh, Roger Shaw deal rejected. And then about five or 10 minutes later, I look back again and it was the Roger Shaw deal. Uh, part of it was re- rejected. Uh, in other words, there's, uh, con- a door open and conditions, uh, that could be met and leading one to believe if those are met, this is, uh, all a done deal. So where are we? Can we decode all of this? Uh, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
11: I'm great, thank you. Just by the way, Scott, uh, leading in here, you had a little music from Elvis. I just saw that Elvis biopic from Boz Lorman, and I can highly recommend it. It was very well done. Is this the one
5: with uh, Tom Hanks?
11: It is, and and Tom Hanks has a bigger role than I thought he would, and I don't want to give too much away, but... There are a couple of things about Colonel Tom Parker that I bet you didn't know and comes to light in this movie.
5: Yeah, I've heard about that. Uh, I got to see that. I haven't seen it yet. But, yeah, I understand this is more around the angle of the colonel than uh, Elvis. Very cool. All right. So uh, decode this for us, uh, Marvin. What happened the other day? It looks like this is a matter of time. Just some more hoops to go through. Uh, Decode what has happened here. (laughs)
11: Right. Well, first let me say, to put it in context, that tomorrow, Thursday, there's another meeting of the Competition Tribunal with Rogers and Shaw, and when we last they did this, it looked like the deal was in a lot of trouble. So yesterday afternoon, uh, Philippe Champagne, the, the minister, came out and he said two things, and you're right, the first headline was, he said, the deal as originally proposed is dead, meaning I will not approve any transfer of wireless bandwidth or wireless accounts uh, from Shaw to Rogers. There's too much concentration. Uh, So that's that's dead. And you thought, well, wait a minute. That actually wasn't the last part of the deal. Uh, Rogers and Shaw had reached a deal with Videotron, a Quebec company, to sell them Freedom Mobile, which is Shaw's wireless activities. Shaw, the fourth largest player in the market. And I thought, well, why Why did he say this? Because, yeah, that deal was off the table a long time ago. So then Minister Champagne went on to say, I would approve, I would approve a deal that sees Freedom Mobile go to Videotron under these two conditions. First, Videotron has to agree to keep the bandwidth and keep the accounts for at least 10 years. This isn't just a six month transfer and then you flip it to somebody else. And secondly, why Videotron is a good player for you and I is their prices in Quebec are roughly 20% lower than the big three, meaning Rogers, Bell and Telus. And, And what Minister Champagne said is, okay, when you get these accounts, I want you to give the same deal to people in Ontario and people out West. And if you agree to that, then I'll approve the deal. Today, Videotron then responded to Minister Champagne's, uh, uh, I'll call that, an invitation, and they said, yeah, we'll we'll abide by that. We'll be fine with that. So tomorrow, when everyone meets with the competition uh, tribunal, I think it's going to go through. If not, it's probably because the competition people want to play a little more with some of their radio and TV properties. But we are now so close to the deal, I think we'll have one by this weekend.
5: Can you explain to us, because uh, what came out of this yesterday was that Quebec was paying, uh, on average, 20% cheaper, I guess, through this company uh, for cell phone service than the rest of the country was. How is this happening, and does this mean if this goes through, we're going to see parity? We're going to see our, our, our rates drop?
11: Well, there's two parts to that equation. Sorry to to make it a little more complicated. So Videotron, one of the ways that they competed against the big three was just by being a cheaper service. You get all the benefits, all the things, but you get it for a 20% lower price. And, And in Quebec, a lot of people signed up for it, but that was the only place where you could buy that service. You and I could not take advantage of that. So what the minister has said, I want to see you offer that same deal in places like Ontario and the West. Now, how will the big three respond conceivably this could cause them to lower their prices. Maybe not a full 20%, maybe they drop their prices by 10 or 15, and this is what the minister and frankly the governments have been wanting for some time is a more competition in the marketplace. The problem has been the independent, the small independent uh, wireless providers haven't been able to sustain these lower prices, meaning they do it for a year or two and then they go bankrupt or somebody has to buy them. And so the question is, can Videotron sustain this? Uh, And I'm not trying to say I'm skeptical of this, but to say you've got to do this for 10 years, I hope that's true. It'll be great news for all of us if they can. But historically, it's been hard for these independents to keep the low prices low for that t- length of time
5: uh, we've been through this tap dance a few times maybe on not on a scale like this of course but we often see well you know if the if the top three players if they just uh, allow when it comes to new uh, new bandwidth new spectrum what have you those go to smaller smaller players and then they just end up eventually getting eaten up by the big three anyway right. so what is this going to look like when it's all done because Uh, At the end of the day, we started with Ma Bell and one company, and I'm not seeing us expand a lot with this.
11: Yeah. So, again, if I can help you a little, maybe, uh, in terms of wireless cell phone technology, the big player in the market is Rogers. Uh, Number two is Bell. Number three is Telus. And then a distant fourth is Freedom Mobile with Shaw. They're not a game of equals there at all. The first three are pretty close to each other. 12 million customers, 9 million and 9 million or 10 million and 10 million. Uh, Freedom is a much smaller player. But the hope is, given that Videotron has been around for a long time, and then if it can add this service and do it economically, that maybe we'll see a fourth one. The the You and I have talked about this before. The one thing the government doesn't seem to want to do is allow an American player into the market, to allow a well-funded American company to come in and really challenge the big three here in Canada. For sure, that would get us the competition we desire. Instead, they've been trying to grow that competition internally.
5: All right. I uh, can't let you go without asking your thoughts on the interest rates uh, hike that we are seeing today. Uh, we've seen now Jugmeet Singh speak up that the prime minister should do something. Uh, it's funny. One t- on, on, on one level, we're hearing that something can be done. On other levels, we can't, we're hearing politicians can't go there. What are your thoughts of where we are right now?
11: Well, the Bank of Canada is independent of the government and independent of the politicians. So, you know, even if the prime minister wanted to pick up the phone and call Tiff Macklem and say, take it the other direction, Tiff, the Tiff would not have to listen to him. It's an independent body. I'm, I actually was pleased that they only increased the interest rates a half a percent. I was worried when the September inflation data was only 6.9 percent. Remember, it fell from 7 to 6.9 I had been thinking it might fall to six and a half or six point three percent. If that was the case, I would have bet on maybe just a zero point two five percent or twenty five basis point increase. When it was fell so marginally, I got worried that it might be three quarters of a percent and a half a percent increase, which is what we got today. I think that's the best case scenario. There's one more chance to review this again in December. I'm hoping the Bank of Canada will see enough positive momentum on the inflation front that maybe they'll pass up that opportunity and then we can skate into 2023 with declining inflation. Remember, the Bank of Canada does not want a recession, but it does need inflation to come down. And that's a very uh, difficult path to find, a way to cool inflation and at the same time not cause the economy to fall into a recession.
5: Marvin Ryder, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thank you for the time. Be well.
11: I will. Thank you.
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
5: All right, the only thing that's um, distracting away from the fact that UK is on, I don't know, its 100th uh, Prime Minister in as many months is that the current Prime Minister is uh, apparently quite loaded. And big time, Rich. Uh, beyond uh, beyond anything you can imagine, Rich. Uh, is this the answer? Where do they go from here? How do you uh, how do you process all of this in such a short period of time? Let's bring in uh, Mel Cap, Professor, Department of Political Science, Faculty of Arts and Science, Professor, Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. And with us now, Mel. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
8: Yes, all doing well, Scott.
5: It seems funny, Mal. The only thing that's distracting away from the hysterics that have been going on there is the fact that the, of the wealth of the prime minister. What can you tell us about this man, and does his wealth factor into any of this?
8: Yeah, I'm surprised to hear you say that. I don't. I, I mean, I think this is a total distraction. Uh, the first uh, prime minister of color is a major uh, event in the United Kingdom. Uh, he's 42 years old. Uh, His wife is the wealthy one. He was a uh, Goldman Sachs uh, consultant for a while, Uh, but his uh, wife and he have slightly more uh, wealth than uh, King Charles. Um, Yeah, sure, that's the case, but I'm sure that if you go back in time, Edward Heath was uh, relatively wealthy and uh, Alec Douglas Hume was, was as well. So conservative prime ministers and wealth tend to go together
5: uh, does this uh is this creating an issue for him as he moves towards austerity and obviously as we've all heard worldwide this is going to get uh a little more difficult before it gets better
8: yeah i don't think so i i hope that no media ask him how much a liter of milk costs because i doubt that he would know but uh <laughs> i do think he uh is going to have to reach out to become more of a uh, a Prime Minister of the People. Uh, his predecessor, immediate predecessor, as we, I mean, people, she will be a, um, a trivial pursuit uh, answer uh, yeah. in due course, Liz Truss. Um, she uh, wanted to essentially liberate the uh, UK economy, and she did it by lowering taxes. And she lowered the taxes for the wealthy, that's not a much of a winning strategy, I would say, uh, to appeal to the people. So she lost uh, her common touch, if you will. And Rishi Sunak has come back and said, no, we're going to restore all of that. And therefore, I don't think he's uh, going to pay much of a price for being wealthy.
5: So what does he bring? I mean, uh, obviously, he had tried for the leadership before. Uh, this is basically the same party. How is it different now?
8: A couple of things. He um, uh, First of all, he actually won uh, the support of the party, of the caucus, of the parliamentary party, uh, over Liz Truss. But as a result of the two of them being there, they had to put it to the whole party, including all of those uh, old white and white-haired and by the way, I am white and white-haired, uh, so I can say that, uh, people in Northern England. And they didn't like the idea of a brown man, is my guess, uh, so they voted for Liz Truss. But he has a lot of support within the parliamentary party or the caucus, and um, he, he he will have to bring the party together. And spent a fair bit of time, and he started that already, in bringing in the different factions of the party. It's already gotten him into trouble because he took Suella Braverman, who had been the Home Secretary and resigned under trust uh, in a big kerfuffle, and uh, he put her back in the job. And she is... Uh, I think there's a technical term for it in the political science literature. She's a wacko, uh, and therefore (laughs) it's going to be very tough. Uh, But she represents a part of the party that is in the extreme right. She wants to send uh, refugees to Rwanda, uh, away from the United Kingdom. Uh, This is pretty harsh stuff, Uh, and she's going to uh, be a bit of a thorn in his side, I think.
5: What about uh, the patients of those in the UK? I mean, obviously, they've seen the revolving door. Is it wearing thin? How much time does he have?
8: Well, there are two kinds of patients. First of all, there is the patients of the NHS, the National Health System. Uh, they're, they're, uh, worried about this iconic, uh, image of the National Health Service and what will Jeremy Hunt as the, uh, finance minister or chancellor of the exchequer and Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, do, uh, to make the NHS uh, sustainable but the patience of the public uh in waiting he's got a two-year runway uh and you know gosh we found that 44 days was short uh or uh, sorry was an eternity in politics if your name was liz truss uh two years is a sustainable amount of time if he can actually put together a uh, a strong economic package that brings britain back if he can solve the northern ireland um uh, protocol problem with uh, the eu and if he can deal with the nhs uh if he can get inflation down the uk has the highest inflation rate in europe um i think he's got a chance of convincing the public that he should get another shot at it uh in 2025 but it's a couple of years away
5: uh, opposition demanding for an election now are they in any predicament is the country in any predicament to go through that
8: Um, I'd be surprised if uh, they lasted the full two years, and I'd be surprised if they had an election uh, in the next uh, one year. Uh, Therefore, I think the opposition, uh, Keir Starmer is a... um, um a, a serious fellow uh he's still working on building uh the labor party and its support he's got a 20 to 30 point lead over rishi sunak uh he's got only one direction to go and that's down uh he needs to put on the brakes a bit on the decline and keep the lead he's got he can do that by being a by showing that he's a governor in waiting uh what what um both of them are have been doing is campaigning and it's much easier to campaign than it is to govern and if uh if he can show that he's a government in waiting then i think starmer has a shot at being prime minister
5: mel cap professor department of political science faculty of arts and science professor monk school of global affairs and public policy at the university of toronto talking about the new prime minister in the uk mel thank you so much for the time be well pleasure
0: you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
5: All right, we remember when we were in the throes of a global pro- uh, pandemic and we saw the flaws and the, uh, in, in the dents in our Canadian health care system, we promised that we were going to fix this when we came out the other end. We still have the same commitment. Uh, the premiers are at it again, dialing up the political heat in their efforts to get Ottawa to increase the federal health transfers. What do we do here? Is it that? Is Is it a new template? Uh, Let's bring in Colleen Flood, Research Chair in Health, Law and Policy, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Colleen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
3: I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh,
5: thanks for being here. Obviously, we, during the pandemic, we saw where, where there were, uh, where there were weaknesses within this system and what we have to do to help our healthcare workers and, and system uh, withstand this sort of, sort of stress, let alone the day to day operation. Do we still have that commitment? Are we still pushing forward with, with fixing the Canadian healthcare system? It seems we're talking more about uh, adding new dental care or daycare. Than we are fixing the old system. Uh,
3: Well, I think the trouble is we're not out of the pandemic and, um, you know, folks are burnt out uh, within the healthcare system. They're exhausted. They're retiring early. Uh, They're actually just sick, so they can't come to work or members of their family are sick with COVID, so they can't really come to work. So, you know, the part of the problem is that we're still in it And um, we're still trying to deal with, you know, the shocks of all the various variants and so on and so forth. Um, So I think, you know, are we committed to it? Not enough, I don't think. I think federal and provincial governments need to be working together uh, as if this is an emergency, because I think it is, to um, take immediate steps to help Canadians access the care they, they, they deserve and desperately need right now.
5: So uh, what's new this time? what are the uh, what are the premiers and the provinces asking for how do we move forward with this? What are they asking for?
3: Well, they're asking for increases to the uh, the transfer, the uh, you know the transfer that they receive from the federal government to help support not only health care but uh, social services. And um, you know the, the general problem is that, um, when the federal government puts more money into the healthcare system, we don't necessarily know if the provinces, what the provinces do with that money. Uh, and so we kind of get into the situation of finger pointing, you know, you don't give me enough money uh, from from the provinces, the federal government saying, well, when we give you the money, we don't see any real results or improvements. So we have this endless bickering and, you know, Canadians are stuck, in the middle um this has been going on for decades of course but with the pandemic um all the the the, f- the fishes the the problems the gaps in the system have just become incredibly exacerbated so i think canadians need to call on both provincial and federal governments right now to work together uh, very quickly to uh, put in place some short-term solutions to try to address these issues so you know if i was talking to my provincial uh, government, I would be saying, well, what will you actually do for us if you get this funding? What are you going to actually do with the money so that you know I have access to uh, a family care team, a primary care provider, that I'm not waiting you know, years for an appointment? What are you actually gonna do to make sure that the system improves? Because if we just put the money back into the status quo and we don't actually expand or improve access we're not going to really fix anything
5: is that done on the provincial level or the federal level obviously we're quite different across the uh, the country so we know what is yeah. needed one place is not necessarily needed another but we also hear that already per capita uh, a tremendous amount of money is paid per Canadian for health care it's just that we're not getting the bang for the buck so is it about more money or is it about changing the template and finding a different way to do things
3: well, we need to do both. And um, I think we need more money right now for some immediate action, some immediate change, because we're still in a crisis. Uh, and so I think the Feds need to come to the table with some additional resources. For example, we need some strong incentives to persuade people who might have recently retired to come back, you know, whether part-time or full-time for another year or so before they finally take their retirement, because we desperately need those people. We need to fast track um, the licensing of physicians who have come from you know, equivalent uh, qu- countries in terms of training. That needs to happen really quickly. We need to permit um, uh, nurse practitioners to operate as uh, family care doctors. We need to do all these things really quickly. So I think you know, the federal government can try to convene the provinces to come together although it's true we have different needs across the country, I think the solutions are actually fairly similar um, from coast to coast. So, uh, you know, I'd like to see the the Fed saying we will come to the table with a whack of money, but we need to have a a consensus about what's going to happen here. What are you actually going to do in the short term to improve care for Canadians? Because they need it now and they don't, you know, a lot of things that people are talking about, Are very medium to long term. Those things do need to happen as well, but we need some short-term solutions really quickly.
5: How do we make sure, Colleen, because we've had this discussion a bazillion times, how do we make sure it gets done? Because if we're not coming out of a global pandemic and seeing what needs to be done, what is going to convince us?
3: Well, yeah. Uh, Well, uh, you know, I hope that um, sometimes, uh, you know, there's a Lord Rutherford. I'm originally from New Zealand. There's a famous physicist called Lord Rutherford who said, "You know, gentlemen, we've run out of money, so now we have to think. Um, maybe,
5: <laughs>
3: yeah, maybe there's an opportunity here. You know, maybe this is the the kind of we have to get to this kind of crisis to finally galvanise people. I I think the worry is people are so desperate, they're kind of signing up for the snake oil of you know, let's privatise, let's privatise, let's privatise. Um, that's not going to help." anybody who's you know normal um, who can't afford uh, fancy private health insurance or incredibly high but not, also-
5: even saying private privatization Colleen that's such a broad term because many much of it's privatized now I mean it's it's a far cry from what we're doing to like a U.S. system or what have you um, when we say privatization it doesn't necessarily mean that though does it I mean it's quite a broad term.
3: Well, when the folks are arguing for privatization, they mean they want you to pay out of pocket for uh, healthcare. So, yeah, well, there's a certain
5: hear- amount of there's a certain amount of privatization now, where the system and the hospitals pay those clinics that are private to do the the work. Now, I mean, that's not yeah, coming those, out of, our, it's those not coming out of public, the pockets. Those,
3: yeah, those are publicly funded, right? So yes, but private, it's privately.
5: Private, yes, but it but it's privately. Uh, it's privately uh, functions. Yeah. It, but yeah, privately delivered. Uh, so but again,
3: that's not what uh, the folks who are seeking privatization are after thereafter. You pay out of pocket. So they I think that's that's
5: a very 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 extreme broad uh, discussion from one end to the other, Colleen. And we'll have that one later. Colleen Flood, with his research chair in health and uh, health law and policy at the University of Ottawa, Canada's premiers uh, dialing up the heat and trying to get some sort of uh, changes to the Canadian healthcare system
6: that get us out of the jam that we are in. The aggressive, sharp increase in interest rates are going to mean, uh, th- those increases are going to mean people are going to hurt. And, and put bluntly, it's going to mean a very likely recession where hundreds of thousands of Canadians are going to lose their jobs. That is a serious problem. All
5: right, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP yesterday, actually um, putting pressure on the Prime Minister to do something, um, although we often hear they he really can't control those sorts of things. Uh, what does it all mean? Let's bring in Eric Ham, Professor of Economics at Toronto Metropolitan University and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
2: I am. Thank you. I hope you are, too.
5: Uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, making reference yesterday to uh, Justin Trudeau to do something to try to take the sting out of interest rates um, and, and mandate what to do. I'm not sure exactly what that all meant. How much control uh, does Justin Trudeau have over interest rates or, or what the Bank of Canada does?
2: You know, Scott, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but this was the topic of my lecture yesterday to my class. And I think that Jugmeet Singh should be absolutely ashamed of himself for getting up there in front of a microphone and saying absolutely nothing. Nothing that anybody can't pick up in a newspaper and read for themselves. We are going through an inflationary period. There is going to be a recession. People are going to lose their jobs. He's fear-mongering, and he has no answers. And I find that truly frustrating. But to answer your question, there's really not a lot that Justin Trudeau can do right now. And I'm very quick, as you know, to criticize the liberals. But the damage is done. The damage was set in place during the, uh, the pandemic when they started to print money to the tune that nobody had ever seen before since people walked the planet. You combine that with supply chain shortages, you've got demand going way up, you've got supply going way down, prices, including interest rates, are only going in one direction. And what you saw today, uh, I told one of your sister stations, that it doesn't matter if it's 25, 50 or 75 basis points, it's going up. It's an admission by the Bank of Canada that we're in a spiral right now, and they don't know what to do about it other than to play the one card they have in their deck. You either play with the money supply or you play with the interest rate. So the Bank of Canada, at least, is doing something. They're doing the only thing the Bank of Canada can do. They're trying to get away with short-term pain for a little bit of long-term gain. They have a plan. They're sticking to it, which is Two more things that I can say for Mr. Singh.
5: Um, uh, Mr. Singh also said, prepare for the recession and those that are going to be unemployed. Does that mean more programs, therefore more money going out, which doesn't that feed inflation?
2: Yes, it does. Any spending feeds inflation. And this is the spiral against the spiral. that I don't know what Mr. Singh is trying to prove right now other than make people scared or make people angry. But it's very easy when you're the leader of the new Democratic Party because you have no chance of governing in the foreseeable future. So you can say what you want. It really bothers me, not only as an economics professor, but just as a member of our society. Where He's very low on answers and very large on blame. This is an economic problem. It's not a political problem. And unfortunately, we don't, we're do not we not physics. We don't have a laboratory, and we can't control for things. Things have to work through the system. And so you have to trust. Well, you don't have to trust, but I hope that people trust that the Bank of Canada are doing what they can do. I mean, they know how to fight inflation. For about 20, 25 years, there wasn't any. Well, now there is. And the government really gave them no benefit. Right. They they raised the they raised the money supply to levels that were just to s- such egregious levels that the Bank of Canada couldn't keep up. They could not accommodate and keep rates low. So you know what? Now rates are rising. It's exactly what economics says is going to happen. And there is going to be a recession. It is going to be tough. People are going to lose their jobs. I saw last week in a report That the conference board says if you make $70,000, Scott, next year, you're going to be about $3,000 poorer in terms of disposable income. That's money in your wallet. It's unfortunate, and I feel terrible for the families that are one or two paychecks close to insolvency. But we are where we are for a reason, and time got us into this mess, and only time is going to get us out of this mess.
5: Uh, he talked about preparation. How do we prepare for this? What, uh, what should what should be our headspace right now?
2: Savings. People have to save. People have to take a really stark, realistic look at where they are financially and figure out where they are and where they wanna be and how they're gonna create a pathway to get there. And if it means that discretionary spending in this period slows down, then so be it. Maybe this is the period you don't go on the vacation, you don't update your car, you don't put in the pool, you really stick to what matters. You stick to paying your rent, And making sure that your children are fed and dressed and sent off to school each day. I mean, I don't like to be too negative, but the reality is we know that we're heading for an economic downturn. And when you head for an economic downturn for the people that are going to be adversely affected or potentially adversely affected, the only thing you can do, to quote my grandfather, is hang on to your wallet and hang on to it tight and maybe delay that consumption today for another time when you have a little bit more savings to back you up.
5: Uh, the, Eric, there's been lots of questions, whether it's Pierre Polievre or uh, Jugmeet Singh, in around the performance of the Bank of Canada. Is is the Bank of Canada not as healthy, not as strong, not as, as sharp as it was with previous uh, people at the helm?
2: I'd like to say two things to that. Number one, the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, is a very, very bright person. He didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. People do not have to be concerned. What's going on right now with the Bank of Canada is effectively an admission. If you go to their webpage, it says that they are there to keep inflation at around 2%. So what you're seeing now, one could judge as a complete failure on the part of the Bank of Canada. And I think the bank would have to accept that. But I really do ask people to look at a bigger picture. The Bank of Canada doesn't work in a vacuum. It works with the government. And they were really handed a bill of goods by the government during the pandemic. And so what you're seeing now, yes, you're seeing them struggle. You want to say that they have a failing mark right now? Sadly, I would agree with you. But life is a spectrum and the economy is a spectrum. And we have to see how they do over time. It really hasn't been that long in the grander scheme of things that we've been caught in this spiral. Let's not forget that for the better part of three decades, the interest rate was stable. So I would like to ask people to be patient, but I'm not stupid. If somebody is fearing losing their home, they don't have the time to be patient. They don't have the time to wait for rates to fall. That's why I ask those people to really slow down their discretionary spending and only spend what is necessary for their family.
5: Uh, Bank of Canada also said that uh, these rough periods that we're going through will only be temporary. However, they said that the... Uh, that inflation would be temporary and transitory. Uh, any idea? Can you say the same thing twice?
2: Well, my wife promised me marriage would always be fun, but you know <laughs> what? It depends on your definition of. It depends on your definition of time, and it depends on your definition of transitory. Again, not to throw too much cold water on this. But it is not going to be temporary. It is not going to be short-lived. It is going to be probably a couple good years, arguably two to three years of this type of inflationary spiral. Um, But I would ask people, if they can, to really try to keep it in perspective. I'm very, very sympathetic to those in hardship. But coming off of, frankly, 30 successful years of inflation fighting, I think the Bank of Canada has built up enough human capital that we owe it the chance to at least address and fix the problem in the long run, because nothing, nothing, Scott, gets fixed in the short run.
5: Eric Ham with us, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fun, Eric. Thanks for the time. Be well. Stay healthy, my friend.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
5: Scott Radley on deck, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
12: I am well, but you know what, Scott? I had—I'm sure you've had this in your long radio career. Right before the music came up, the feeling of a giant sneeze set
5: in that I'm now (laughs) fighting
12: to hold off, so I don't have people drive off the road.
5: Uh, Look at the light, sneeze, and get it over with. And you know, you can be happy—it's just a sneeze. Could be worse.
12: I'm amazed. You are. I, I had heard since high school, look at the light. You are the first person I've ever <laughs> heard since then who follows the same advice. that, I've, that I have lived by that. that Does that it is not the work, Does it not work? Every time. Every time. And I don't know if it has anything to do with the light or if you could say, look at the ceiling, and it would work because you're tipping your head up. I don't That's know. That's right. But yes. it works every time.
5: You're right. It may have to do with the angle of your head and not the actual light. We should do a study of this. Call Mac. All right. Um, so, so uh, unless you want to talk about something else, uh, Doug Ford getting hammered today in uh, in the legislative assembly during question period by the uh, temporary or interim leader of the NDP uh, for not uh, showing up at the Emergencies Act, trying to get out of it, uh, the inquiry to testify. He goes on to say it's a federal thing, it's a federal thing, whatever, whatever. And, you know, I can understand why he does not want to or why anyone would want to do uh, be dragged into this uh, woke discussion which is going on in Ottawa about what the hell happened to their police department on the other hand I'm of the uh, I'm of the uh, of the uh, idea I lost the word there that um, you know if people are are if you're not speaking people will dictate the narrative for you they will speak for you they will set the scene so why would you not just get up and, and do something other than there's an incredibly embarrassing fo- embarrassing phone call much like the one One the prime minister had with the mayor of Ottawa. Why else wouldn't you just get up and say, "Hey, you know what? I'm not interested," and here's why.
12: Well, so there's a couple reasons. The answer could be what you just said. There could be something embarrassing that is looming. I
5: think he's also playing between uh, two sides of the fence here. So, well, I was going
12: to say there could also be political ramifications that you're looking, you know, that the party is looking at polls and saying, you know. Right now, um, we're better off if we don't look like we were on the side of the Emergencies Act. And if the premier who did support the idea of the Emergencies Act has to get called in and is on the stand and has to talk about it, maybe this doesn't look good. Now, that part, though, here's the thing. I would I would tend to put less weight on that. And the reason is we are only five months into a new mandate. Yeah, no one cares uh, about an election three three and a half years from now, everyone probably will have forgotten about this. so if if that's the reason, I think that's a an overreaction by him because there's you you could do, and I've said this before, Scott, I, I have argued, I don't know why political parties don't do this. I don't know why political parties who win election and know that there is something difficult that they have to do. Don't smack the public with it like
5: three minutes after they get into office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And get.
12: The oh, baton. by the way, I'm,
5: oh, by the way, I'm not wearing pants. All right, let's continue on.
12: Well, no, but like, yeah. So make the make the public eat their Brussels sprouts and spinach on the first day, and then bring yeah. out the dessert right before yeah. the election. That has always, to me, seemed to be the wise way to do it. I thought that might be what we see. With some of what we were with after COVID and all the deficit and the debt and everything, I thought we might federally and provincially see a huge slap somehow that we were going to absorb because we want to get that out of the way. So back to the point, if, that's, if this is a political calculation, I don't know that it needs to be at this point because people will forget
5: uh, and it seems that something's going on between Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau. Like if something finds out, because they're both on opposite teams, but they're playing like they're in the same sandbox and they love each other. Even after, uh, you know, the, the shaming phone call came out about the prime minister calling uh, or recusing the the premier of hiding and, and the the mayor of Ottawa saying we can shame him into all of this. Um, so, you know, obviously that's the opposite of what we see uh, at, the, at the news conferences when they're all buddy buddy so is there the same sort of conversation of the premier slamming uh the prime minister because these guys have got a lot of deals in the work and they're trying to keep obviously their relationship copacetic could this turn it all upside down
12: scott let me ask you a question do you believe anything you see i'm not even talking words performatively do you believe anything you see from any politician when dealing with another politician (laughs) no I, it's, it's performance art and you don't behind the scenes. I would bet tons of money that what, how the discussions are and the facial features and how many crossed arms there are and all the rest is then you come out in public and the cameras are on and you become an actor. You have to be part actor to be a politician. I don't believe honestly that Doug Ford has high regard for Justin Trudeau. I really don't Mm, know. And I don't believe that Justin Trudeau has high regard for Doug Ford, but it serves both of their purposes. Doug Ford needs federal money and Justin Trudeau doesn't want to have to be fighting with Ontario all the time. It serves both their purposes to play nice and get along, at least publicly, at least make it look that way. And you know what? Politically, that's a better decision. But honestly, do you really think that one of them is spending Christmas Day at the other one's house for dinner?
5: No. I'm not sure what Doug Ford or any of them can have that's so damaging. Did they, all right, we're not sending stuff. We're. Not, I mean, from what we've heard even already, um, this was a complete breakdown of the Ottawa Police Service and, and a complete lack of leadership and a plan uh, when all hell broke loose. So, you know, I mean... Yeah, you know, I'm not sure what else he can add other than the phone calls and such. And and I, it, it, well, because he just didn't have do. that power. He didn't have the power to do anything. What's he going to do? Tell at the end of the day, as I said before, I think what's going to happen is we're going to realize that the Ottawa police chief c- completely flamed out. He wasn't taking any information from anybody, whether it's the OPP, government, whoever. And he had to be knocked out. He had to be replaced in order to get control of the situation. That's why the emergency act is called, getting rid of the chief. He resigns anyway. Now we can move in. And get something done without a bunch of woke people who don't want to who don't want to do anything.
12: Really quickly, remember one other thing. What would the public reaction have been if you had a Doug Ford or any other leader suddenly tried to tell the police how they were supposed to behave or what they were supposed to do? You would have people freaking out that a political party was now trying to use the police to serve their purposes and direct what the police the police have to be independent, otherwise you end up you know, with shades of what happened in Germany in the 30s and 40s, where the police become an arm of the state. Nobody is going to want to hear that any government or political party was directing the police. So, you know, Doug Ford's position, his best position is actually what is almost certainly true. I didn't tell the police what to do. And, and that, then is that not close yeah. to the end i mean there's other things going on i suppose but th- that's the answer i didn't just tell the point now if he did tell the police well you do have a bit of a problem then probably um, all right scott we'll
5: radley we got to cut you off there scott radley show coming up after six o'clock you can read them in your hamilton spectator scott as always thanks for the time have a great show Thanks,
0: Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
5: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Diane and Dave and the two wills. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, to have the last word. Roman wrote in to say... It was irritating to hear candidates talk
10: about housing, taxes, climate change, etc., providing useless commentary about being in favor or against. I want to hear how they would provide housing, how they would provide safe streets, what kind of action they would take on climate change. People want to hear specifics.